0: Welcome to Episode 9 of CTU Speaks on the Eve of Justice.
1: Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a
0: Chicago teacher, so I'm inspired by the fight from our Chicago teachers. I am your co-host, Andrea Parker, and I'm joined with... Jim Starrams. And we are on Day 9 of The Strike. And on the seventh day of the actual work stoppage. On today's episode, we are joined with Dr. Eve L. Ewing, who is the author of Ghosts in the Schoolyard Racism and School Closings on Chicago's South Side. This is a book that was talking about the infamous school closing in 2013. And she is also a professor uh, at the University of Chicago.
1: Nice. But before we get to Dr. Ewing, let's talk about what's been going on on the Straight Line.
0: Ooh, seven days. It's been a while. It's been bittersweet. All right. So I would say for me, just again, just a lot of building of camaraderie with mm-hmm. our with our um, union. I love seeing the twenty five thousand strong downtown. That well, I would craziness. say thirty five thousand strong yeah. with SCIU as well, mm-hmm. and just seeing the sea of red and purple. Um, just seeing everybody just be on one accord and that momentum. Yep. As a collective unit, and then also as you know your your individual schools. So I I do love that.
1: I like it too. You've got you know. St- Teachers in my building that you don't really see a lot sometimes right. they're in different parts of the building because yes. King's a pretty big school. Okay. Sometimes we don't get to see each other all the time and seeing the, the SEIU people out there. And even when the, the, the police officers drive by, they hit their sirens like, you know, that, yeah. that gets a big cheer out of everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, we had a little barbecue grill out there. We, we did, grill, too. were grilling hot dogs. Yeah. Not much on an 8 a.m. hot dog, but, you know, at least they weren't putting ketchup on it. Yeah, so we were that's grilling okay.
0: tacos and everything.
1: Yeah, We had tamales, too. Yeah, we had a lot of things. Yeah, we had so, a lot of stuff.
0: It was good. Yeah. So you have to make the best out of the situation. We, we were do. We did some singing today. We did the seven days of the strike. Hopefully it won't get to How eight days go? of the strike. But it was good. How? Uh, one verse was. Oh, okay. You oh, she's going to sing it. Okay. I didn't <laughs> no, think you don't want to hear me sing. No, I do. Definitely. <laughs> but one of the verses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the seven. I'm going to go to say this. On the seventh day of the strike, my mayor felt to give to me. Her respect and empathy, healthcare costs freezes, 30 minutes of morning prep time, enough TIF funny clinicians and librarians, <laughs> lower class sizes, and a pen to put it all in writing. Nice. <laughs> I, everybody's laughing at me. That about you is but yeah, crazy. But we really, and so we had the, you know, go to YouTube and get the karaoke version because we don't have a music teacher. So it was not oh. the best well coordinated.
1: Well, that you cause need we a music teacher in teach, our school
0: because we're not, Fully funded like we should be. Not even
1: one day a week like a nurse? Not even one day a oh. week.
0: Not even a consultant. Not even somebody from outside. Nothing. Not
1: even anybody who can I'm a music okay. teacher. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I can see that.
0: Ah, so so that was good. So nice. that's the sweet thing about it. Also, got a check today. We did. <laughs> but I can't check it. I can't check to see if it's the right amount. Right. So we don't have access to our emails. I know. So our emails connect us to everything. It connects us to our benefits, our pay. Yep.
1: hr for you. For, for a high school teacher, yes. it also connects us to uh, writing uh, letters of recommendation for students. Everything, stuff like that. grades, yep, everything. everything.
0: So everything is tied to our email address. And so we cannot get anything. So I can't even see... If my paycheck is right, I, I missed the, the day. Anything, the mayor just
1: shut all that down instantly. Down, instantly, she's pretty quick to shut it down, though.
0: But when yeah. it comes to the inefficiencies of Aspen, oh, it takes and forever. And we need something to get fixed in Aspen. Yep. It's like it takes forever. Yep,
1: Aspen is uh, the new. How much was it's it? A 30, new $35 dollars or something we spent on. that. Was it? I know we had a Don't lot of tell money me for that. that. It was something crazy amount, but it There's was. A it's <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but uh we'll find out i guess yeah. but yeah so it it's our gradebook attendance software how we get ieps for students mm. um it connects us to parents it's the whole link up used to be gradebook back in the day that's how we used to do it that one worked as well as it ever worked but apparently we had to pay more money for a new one because we had money for that um, that's more difficult it is more difficult and time consuming yep And they're finding all kind of problems. One good one is that if a student transfers from one of my classes to another one of my classes, all of his grades disappear.
0: Oh, yes. All disappear. Yes.
1: Apparently, that didn't occur to anybody that a student could transfer from one class to another. That happened to me several times That was just too complicated for those people to figure out. I bet they're not educators, shockingly. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of shutting it down, you know what the mayor did? She shut down the bargaining.
0: Of course she did. Yeah,
1: that's what she does. She says, oh, we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about that. There's no more money in the budget. We can't put all the staffing in writing. And then guess what she starts to do? What she do? She starts putting it in writing. She starts finding money. Oh, big surprise. We found some money in the TIF fund. We had to give some of it back because apparently she said, oh, here's some. No, psych. And then took it back. But you know what it reminded me of? You know that uh, that commercial where they they got the dollar and they're dangling it and like, you got to be quicker than that. (laughs) That's what I. Re- that's what yeah. it reminded me. of. Yeah, I don't even remember what yeah, that was no, for, but that's what it reminded me of when she oh. did it. i like, I just imagined her up there with like the big dollar yeah, dangling in my head all day. Yeah, yep. You got to be quicker than that. But yeah, so uh, I mean, this this is the thing. Without the strike, none of this stuff would have even moved. Mm-mm. You know, this she. Of course, she claims it's not from the strike because she's got to say that. But how do you, how do you find this money? Like, there's no more money. Oh wait, now there is, right? How are we going to say, oh, we're not we're not going to talk about class size? Oh, guess what we're talking about?
0: Class size.
1: Yep. So all this stuff changes because of the action we're doing in the streets every day. And it's, sometimes it's hard to see it when we're out there because we see, you know, the sea of red. We see everybody banging drums and singing the seven days of what what was it?
0: Seven days of the strike.
1: Seven days of the strike. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, we don't we don't see on the line any real movement because that's happening behind closed doors somewhere else.
0: Yeah. And I just want to encourage all the CTU members and SEI members. I know that you've been out there um, seven days and. You've been at your school every day. You've been going downtown, and we just want to say we appreciate all that. We do. What you're doing is working. Yep. And like Jim said, like we may not see the action right away, we may not see the results right away, but it is coming. And you know, slow and steady wins the race. Right. And so we were just, I'm trusting the people in bargaining. It's a lengthy process. We got to read that language. We got to make sure that language is airtight. We don't want any loopholes in that language. And so let's, um, we got to continue to be patient and continue to stay the course. Because I, I know it was going to be something good that results in right. this. So just know that our labor, our striking, our picketing, the songs that we're singing, the chants that we're making, the marching could be hard on your feet, but. It is it is so worth it for it's our students because again we are trying to change the whole dynamic of how CPS does school, how they treat our babies, and to make sure everybody in every neighborhood gets a quality education.
1: Exactly, and th- that's why the mayor sent that letter out last week, telling us to go back to work, and then we'll negotiate later because she knows the longer we're out there, the more pressure it puts on her to do the stuff she doesn't want to do. Because
0: it doesn't look good. Because today nope. we had the, um, the student athletes were trying to talk to her because mm-hmm. they were trying to get a waiver to be able to play in postseason sports mm-hmm. and they couldn't get she walked away yeah. so they couldn't even get to her so no. she's the more she's doing this the less likable I feel like she is becoming
1: yeah and it makes it hard for her to keep going with this type of stuff because if she gives them the waiver then it takes some of that pressure off and and she, does, she doesn't want to do that she wants to make it seem like CTU is is hurting these kids. And we're not. We're you know, we, we're talking not about short term versus long term issues. And it, it does it, it sucks sometimes that she wants to make it that kind of an issue. But these are the long term investments we need to make in the city so that future athletes and future students have what's needed.
0: I was just going to say that not because because we because I do feel for those athletes, but also I feel for those students who want to be athletes in school that have no athletics program.
1: Exactly. So I know you weren't there on the last episode. I'm glad you're feeling so much better. I am
0: feeling better. You thank sound you. sound much better, too. I, I, thank you.
1: But on the, on the, in the last episode, which I'm sure you listened to intently.
0: <laughs> Several times.
1: Of course. <laughs> but on that last episode, uh, you know, one of the things we, we were talking about is how the mayor in that letter said that she hopes there is uh, an urgency. And I wonder where this urgency was back in January or February or March. Now she's gonna claim she wasn't mayor back then. But what but what about
0: the same to the same bargaining team?
1: Exactly, same bargaining, same lawyer. Right. Right. And what about May and June and July and August and September? What Mm -hmm. about all those months? All those months. Uh, Apparently, that's not what urgent means. I'm going to have to look that up again because I don't know what it means, I guess.
0: I think she just thinks urgent for us, not urgent for her. So it's the hypocritical thing. What's good for the goose is not good for the gander.
1: Exactly. It's like when the the students wait to the last minute to get an assignment done. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, my God, I had so much work to do tonight. Well, you had like three weeks. Yeah. Right. And she had 10 months. Correct. And now all of a sudden it's a problem. And that she wanted to try to make it sound like we're the ones that are having a problem.
0: Which is, again, weird because everything that we were wanting, she said that she would be willing to give to us. She's so-called had a heart for education. This Mm -hmm. was her passion. Yep. So she was she she wanted black and brown kids to get what they needed. She saw the disparity in public education. She wanted an elected school board, allegedly. Well, not even legacy. She said that she wanted an elected school board. So all these priorities had left the door when she got in an office. Exactly. And so, again, we are urgent. This is why we out here, because we, yep. we, we are urgent. This is urgent because, again, we're fighting for the lives of our all children to get what they need, because this is, again, a civil. This is a civil rights issue. It is. And so kids are not getting the resources they need. If they don't get the resource they need, they're not going to be able to compete for college or careers later on in life and that's yep. that's not fair to them and
1: and this is it, it's bigger than that this is this is a, a an issue about civil rights as a whole mm-hmm. and these are rights that are guaranteed to these kids in the constitution they're constitutionally guaranteed rights that we're fighting for for these kids we're not fighting for oh you get some kind of education over here and you get some right. some other kind over here that's not how it we is in one that's not what equal protection means it means we're all treated equally and these kids need even more resources and more services because of the some some of the trauma they've gone through some of the issues they've had in their past, and and Lori wants to pull that and make it worse.
0: Right. We constantly want to say the disparity that they have, but what are we doing to fix the disparities and make sure that they are on an equal playing field?
1: That's what we need to do. Speaking of inequality, we have Eve Ewing here to talk about her book, Ghost in the Schoolyard, talking about the disinvestment of CPS in certain neighborhoods and how that affects the children and the families within the neighborhoods.
0: So let's definitely hear her perspective on this issue. So we're here with Dr. Eve Ewing, who is the author of Ghosts in the Schoolyard. So, um, Dr. Ewing, can you give us a little bit of background about yourself?
2: Sure. Um, well, my name is Eve Ewing. I'm a professor at the University of Chicago School of Social Service Administration, where I do research on race, education, social inequality, and I also teach classes on those topics. I am a lifelong Chicagoan, a form- former CPS uh, student and teacher, and I'm a Gemini. Ooh, my
0: sister nice. is. Always- I'm a
1: Gemini, too.
2: Yeah, Ooh. people give That's us a right. lot of flack. Yeah, i It's called haterism.
1: It is not Haterism or the non gemini That's called personalities. Because there's two of us. <laughs> we're
0: we're the good. Yeah, Twice <laughs> as good. Twice as good. Twice as exactly. good. So I'm sure we got an Eve and then there's a Dr. Ewing. <laughs> yeah, either one. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly, <Yeah>. exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Dr. Eve, thank you for coming into our show today.
2: Thanks for having me. We
0: also know that you are also a product of CPS. Product of CPS and a former rank and file CT. Yes, how did Ooh. you get into teaching, by the way?
2: Um, I got into teaching um, because I wanted to to do something in my community that would be valuable and that would also teach me something about how to be a better person and, and live a good life. And I really, 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 really love kids. My own emotional and physical development kind of ended at about age 12 or 13. So <laughs> uh, I'm just sort of trapped in middle school perpetually, mm-hmm. so I decided oh. to do
0: that as a profession. Okay. okay. Hmm. So was it in your teaching career that you saw like the ills of students the things that um, the students were facing or teachers were facing when it comes to CPS? Absolutely but I actually um, became interested in educational inequality
2: much sooner okay. as, a, as a student um, so I think some of my earliest memories of seeing segregation and CPS seeing um, different experiences even within the same district where um, I went to a magnet school I went to Hawthorne Scholastic Academy okay. and so um, taking a school bus from my neighborhood in Logan Square to my elementary school which was in Lakeview and seeing the way segregation played out even in who's on the bus with you right, right. um and then you know i played basketball not very well um oh, really? in eighth grade <laughs> yes my, my uh, athletic career ended uh, prematurely oh. um and so but even things like going to other elementary schools in our community and seeing just basic things like bathrooms with doors off the hinges right um even the way i have a brother who is younger than me and attended the same elementary school as me and I think some of my earliest understandings of the inter- the intersection of race and gender also started playing out in seeing the way my brother was treated, seeing the way, you know, black and Latinx boys who were my friends that were, were treated differently yes. than myself. Um, and so those those kinds of awarenesses and curiosities, I think, peaked really, really early for me. Um, and I think that that's true with a lot of CPS students. You know, I when I taught eighth grade, my students were perfectly able to, you know, see and articulate the fact that they knew that they were not getting what other people in other places were getting.
0: Okay. So, you- you're saying that when you were like even early as grammar school, you know, oh, sure. you, you the differences like segregation. You're saying in one in your neighborhood in Lower Square, you saw like just a lack of resources. You send doors off the hinges and you go into another neighborhood and you see beautiful things. Right. You see more resources. Even
2: the understanding mm-hmm. of, you know, why do I go to this school and yeah, not why. my neighborhood school? Mm-hmm. Right? right. And then how do people talk about one right. school versus how they talk about another school? What things did you hear? Um, you know just the way people talk about certain neighborhood schools very dismissively right just the understanding of you're, you're not going to go here right you're not and right. another thing is that because I went to elementary school in Lakeview um, even things that you know we always had an art teacher we always had a music teacher mm-hmm. we always had mm-hmm. a library with a librarian and, and that's a nurse? because mm-hmm. no, no nurse nurse. Get a nurse. <laughs> almost and we used to make the same joke you know I think we had somebody there once a week that I never saw and my brother and I both had um, very severe asthma when we mm-hmm. were kids and okay. the policy was actually that if you needed to use an inhaler it had to be kept in the nurse's office and my mother was a very vocal advocate for us to be able to actually keep our inhaler and to try to change the policy because she said mm-hmm. you know my kids life is at risk if they right. have to wait for a non-existent nurse to show up and, and you know give them albuterol give them an inhaler and so we used to make the same joke you know in the 90s that kids make today which is like you can only get sick on a Tuesday right, right? because the nurses this, this mythical hypothetical nurse that I can't I could tell you my library teacher's name, my counselor's name. Wow. Couldn't tell you about a nurse nurse, who I assume existed. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, so at a very young age, I became really aware of those things. So I like when you said your mother –
0: advocated yes so what did she do um what did she do to advocate or yeah. what did she do like yes to advocate because you said that you, we're not gonna just wait for a nurse on money to give right. you your albuterol you
2: know I think my mother had the same experiences that a lot of black women have mm-hmm. um which is that and a lot of women of color have which is yeah. that you become politicized in having to demand the things that your kids need that are just basic things that other mm-hmm. people take for granted mm-hmm. and so that was something that she really modeled for me I remember I was a very nosy child I would go through things that <laughs> didn't belong to me and I remember finding a letter that my mom had written to our senator about the fact that Mm. um, where we lived was right next to a very busy trucking route. Right. And so there's particulates and air pollutants in the air that were also exacerbating our asthma. And I remember like being really proud that my mom had (laughs) written this letter. Wow. And, you know, she she always says, um, you know, you just you show up, you make sure that they know your name, you make sure that they know who you are and that, You know, regardless of anything else, um, that you just have to advocate for your own children. And I think something I've noticed a lot in talking to parents in my research, as well as, you know, as a teacher, is this a lot of parents, it's not like they want to be community organizers, right? Right. They don't want to be out in the streets, right? They're forced to because just to ask for basic things that other people take for granted. They're like, we just want to be having a regular bake sale and a school play like everybody else. But unfortunately, we're out here fighting for the essentials that other people, Mm -hmm. it doesn't even occur to them that, that these are things that people would have to ask for. Right. Absolutely.
1: Now, a lot of the book that you've got, um, it focuses on the, the policy issues and that there were intentional policies put in place to specifically underfund certain neighborhoods so then they could blame them for being underutilized and under-resourced. Mm-hmm. And and it, the language you use in the book is very intentional, I think, that the, the way that you focus on these issues. And I, I'm wondering how you see that that intersect with the, the concept of racism as it plays out here in the city.
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, I was thinking about this um, as we heard the statement from the mayor this week about not, quote, bailing out CPS. Yes. Yep, exactly. I was like, Don't wow! Yeah, I, I, I thought yep. the same Wow, thing. sorry, trigger warning. It on was, that. it was. Right, and the, the presumption there um, is that things that are being asked for for, that, again, in other contexts would be seen as the literal bare minimum that hmm. is necessary right. for children to have a healthy and productive learning environment, to have any chance at coming in and doing the things that we're asking them to do, for teachers to have any chance at coming in and doing the things that we're asking them to do. That, that these things are somehow privileges, right? right? That these things are somehow you know extra and right. greedy for asking for these things. And I think that that has a direct tie to um, the history and legacy of institutional racism, the way people see us as a majority black and Latinx district, the way people see um, educators who are also people of color yeah. often, or people right. who are you know white people advocating on behalf of people of color, that there's like this indignance, like how dare you be right. audacious enough to ask for these things. And again, I can't reinforce enough. These are things that the majority of people in other contexts would be shocked to see that we are even asking for, right? right? You know, it's funny in the book I talk about in the um, during the Great Migration when black students were first coming into Chicago right. public schools from the South um, and black leaders in Chicago started complaining about segregation like hey we're in Northern City right. we ha- why do we have a segregated school system right some district leader said these students should be glad that this isn't Mississippi right, right. they were being educated in shacks in the South so they should be grateful to have anything and uh, you know a black uh, local leader said we don't judge our education by Mississippi standards we judge by Chicago standards exactly. but they would come out and say you know basically you should be grateful for scraps and I think that that is, in, that is really indicative of a fundamental disregard for certain children right not for children in general but when it's our kids the way we talk about school as a nurturing space a learning space an exploring space where our job is to help kids self actualize and reach their highest potential all that goes out the window
0: it becomes you should be grateful for what you right. get. So you still think that that's the same sentiments that we have in this city as a culture even though we have a black mayor and an African American, um, super, I mean, CEO of Chicago Public
2: Schools? 120%. Because the way that white supremacy works, and Mm -hmm. one thing I try to talk about in the book is a lot of people think that racism, I, I use this metaphor of the jockey versus the carousel, right? So a lot of people think that if you're riding a horse, racism is like being a jockey. You're steering the horse, you're like choosing if you want the horse to jump over a hurdle, go left, go right, go faster, go slower. But actually, racism in our society is a carousel. You're on a horse, right? But the thing is going around without you regardless you could just stand still and you'd continue to go in this circle and to go where the horse takes you and to resist it you actually have to take affirmative choices you have to be proactive and say i'm going to jump off right or i'm going to try to unplug it or i'm going to try to do something but so so what that means is that people of color and specifically in this case black people are absolutely able to be complicit in and participate in racist structures that harm black kids and and you know in the same way that you know i talk about in the kavanaugh hearings we had women right supporting and approving people you know a man who's upholding the patriarchy and sexually assaulting people we have people like clarence thomas right like as long as there has been oppression there unfortunately have been people within those oppressed groups that are complicit in replicating that oppression and that's really unfortunate and i also want to say I believe that sometimes, you know, that can be an intentional strategy to put those black faces in high places, so that you know, in the in the book, I, right in the book, I talk right. about Barbara Bird Bennett, and Barbara Bird Bennett being yeah. in place means that when people said, "Hey, school closings are racist," she could say, "How dare you say this to me as right. a black woman?" So it became about a personalized insult against her rather than a, a and, structural critique, right? Right, which is a quite quite amazing strategy if you think about it. That's
0: mm-hmm. true. So this book stemmed from, um, the ghost in the schoolyard stemmed from the school closings yes. in 2013. Yes, ma'am. And so do you think, uh, with the school closing in 2013, we had about 50 school closings. And so we have that strike. We also are sh- striking today. So do you feel that, there is a direct there's still like a correlation with those school closings is what's happened with these strikes come from the same root of the school closings
2: yeah that's an excellent question i think from a policy perspective mm-hmm. it can be e- easy to see these things as separate right but i think you know something i think a lot about is again like How do we center the fact that we are in the business of children? We are in the business of loving, uplifting and supporting children. Right. And I think both of these policy decisions stem from a basic disregard of that fact. Mm. So in the case of the school closures, what a lot of people I spoke to, they said, it's not just that our schools close. Right. Like maybe schools have to close sometimes. It's the way the process is carried out that treats the stakeholders most affected by the decision, which with such deep um, erasure, contempt, disregard and straight up marginalization. Right. And so and, and a counter example I often give is in uh, last year. Right. Ogden and Jenner merged. Right. And right. if you look at the Ogden Jenner merger on paper, it's actually exactly the same as a school closure. Right. One school closes mm. and those students get relocated right. to another school nearby. No one even called it a closure because. What happened was that the people impacted by that decision were actually on the ground organizing, discussing, mobilizing, right, beginning with two principles and then a long period of engagement with parents and students to actually participate. And so even though on paper it's the exact same policy – people perceive it as not even being a closure, right? They call it this other thing, a merger. Right. And so. Consolidation. Right. Consolidation. (laughs) And nobody, nobody's up in arms, right? Right. Protesting and marching in the streets for, because they got to participate. And so I think a similar thing here is, you know, how do you actually make space for the people that are impacted by these decisions to have a sense of humanity and a sense of meaningful participation? Our city is a fundamentally, deeply, harmfully undemocratic city in many ways. Uh, We are a deeply autocratic city in in many ways where, we have a lot of power that rests in one office the mayoral office oh yeah lots
0: of power and unfortunately
2: mm. our schools are one of the the most pernicious places where that plays right. out where Chicagoans cannot vote for any beyond the local school council we do not have the right to vote for the people who make the decisions regarding our kids which is one of the most if, if next time you go to the ballot and you're going down the list you're like I don't even vote well, The what, Metropolitan Water Reclamation District <laughs> right, right? <laughs> like are you an informed voter on right. who is running that you exactly. probably should even be not do right, right. But, <laughs> but our producers like I am right I'm doing the research but the fact that we can vote for those things but we can't vote for the people who are making the decisions about our kids is a travesty and and that's the same that same disregard for people on the ground for grassroots folks that are most impacted by an issue I think that is a root cause of both of those issues both the things leading up to the strike today as well as the closure in 2013
1: one of the things I liked a lot um, it seemed like one of your questions that drove you to this was if these schools are so bad and they're so horrible why are people fighting for them so hard these people can't all just be that ignorant about it. And, that, and you kind of pair mm-hmm. it with a – I forget the term you use exactly. something like um, market racism or laissez-faire racism yes, or yes, something like that. Yes, laissez-faire racism. Mm-hmm. Right. And I was wondering like how that links up to the, the invocation of building-based budgeting mm-hmm. and, and how that kind of uh, targets certain schools and certain neighborhoods in that way. Because like you said, these schools are bigger than just a school. It's, it's a community. It's a sense of identity.
2: Right. I mean, I'm definitely not a budget expert, but I think, you know, for me, the bottom line is how do the way we allocate funds to our schools into social needs and social goods in our society more generally, how do those decisions reflect what our values are? Right. Right. You know, I, I think it's really important for people to know that we are literally spending four million dollars a day on policing in this city, mm. right? We are literally spending four million dollars a day on policing. That is an astronomical number, right? And when you think about it, um, so much of that money, right, uh, uh, something around the tune of half a billion dollars in the last several years, of that has actually been spent paying uh, lawsuits and settlements for police misconduct, mm. right? And so. We are fine saying, let's spend $95 million on a new police training academy. Let's spend $4 million a day so that, you know, police can oftentimes mistreat the very same students that we're failing to educate in school spaces. What would it look like for us to spend that money in a proactive, preemptive way that recognizes people's humanity? Right. Right. And that is unfortunately not um, a virtue that that underlies uh, the way we think about budgeting um, as a city overall. Unfortunately, you know, the way we allocate funding for our students acts as though all of our students are the same and that they have the same needs um, when we know that that is not the case. And so what would it look like if we were actually budgeting in a way that reflected the differing priorities and needs of kids right. that are coming to us in all different situations from across the city? And furthermore, um, when we treat schools like a marketplace, right, like a kind of choice based mm, portfolio right. marketplace, it really puts schools in a situation where they're supposed to be competing. With each other, right. Right. right? Under the idea that, like, may the best man win as though this is two flower shops across the street from <laughs> each other. Yeah. Right. As though it's a business. Right. And regardless, if one of those schools quote unquote loses, who really loses there, right. right? And so when we have uh these funding formulas that really rely on, you know, to use the the popular colloquial term, butts and seats, right? What it means is that those schools that are seeing declining enrollment um, are seeing declines in in funding, right. which then in turn may makes them less and less able to, quote unquote, compete in this marketplace. Mm -hmm, Furthermore, um, schools in Chicago that are seen as desirable, uh, largely because they are in majority white neighborhoods and or have been, you know, I I ran some yesterday in my, Free time. I made this spreadsheet because I just wanted to know, like, what percentage of white students in CPS are in what percentage of schools? And based on the analysis I ran, which was based on 2018-2019 enrollment numbers that anyone can go look up Mm. at cps.edu, half of CPS's white students are congregated in about 4% of CPS schools, Mm. right? And so there are very few numbers of schools where white parents have decided it's okay to send their kids. They've congregated there. And what we see there is often these quote friends of groups, right? right? Friends of such and such elementary that raise on the order of hundreds of thousands of dollars exactly. for their students, yep. right? Which that's their prerogative. Yeah. But right. there's a difference between a school that has a fundraiser where somebody is a partner at a law firm, right, and they're putting up like season Cubs tickets mm. or you know uh, having a, a black tie gala at their office versus you know a school like the one where I taught, where it's like we're selling candy bars, right? right. And even the thing of like let's partner with local businesses. Well, if you're in a, a historically you know, under-invested neighborhood where local businesses aren't present, where they're struggling to survive, that's just not a thing. And so what that does is it actually creates an artificial cushion for those schools right. that have the social capital and the cultural capital to raise outside funds, whether it be from corporate you know, sources, from donors, from parents themselves. And unfortunately, that insulates them from a lot of the most painful and pernicious budgetary problems that CPS faces. And in my opinion, um, really prevents a, a great source, what could be a great source of political solidarity right. between students at and parents at schools that are so-called haves versus those that are at so-called have-nots. My policy proposal for this is that we should make a rule that if you're going to fundraise for your school, it all has to go into a general pot mm. and then be redistributed. My husband who is an economist tells me very firmly that that would disincentivize people, people from, from fundraising, right? Because yeah. people have this idea that they're doing it for their kid and their school. so but They'd
1: still be all in the same boat at that point. Though.
2: Right. Well, so the, right, exactly. Yeah. So then I got to go back to the drawing board on that one uh, <laughs> on my, my wealth redistribution uh, cps plan but but yeah i think that that's just really important and it's important to know that even on on paper when these these budgetary resources are the same they end up not being the same right. because of this kind of external cushioning
0: okay so i'm just thinking about what's happening now so we know that we are on the seven day of, of a strike and every it seems like teachers are constantly advocating for the essentials right. for our kids. So. When you talk about races, you're talking about the student based budget, you're talking about the fundraising for some schools in the within the district and the advantage they have. How do we fix this problem? How do we fix it so next time or we come to a ne- another contract that c p s can't say there's no money, we can't blame the funding formula. How do we fix this issue within c p s so we won't have to worry about another strike or parents having to advocate for the essentials.
2: Don't you know I'm the guest you come to talk to you about all the problems and how horrible everything is? I don't have solutions. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it depends on how deeply you want to go when you say what the quote unquote problem is, right? Mm -hmm. So if we want to say how do we fix the the problem of budgeting? You know, there are some short-term measures we can think about in terms of coming up with fairer funding formulas. Um, but there's a, the problem kind of beneath that is mm-hmm. what does it mean in our society to have budgets that are fundamentally based on property taxes, right? right? right. Such exactly. that, you know, wealthy people who have fled the city and formed kind of enclaves for themselves in other places. Um, and they say, oh, I send my kid to a public school. Well, yeah. yes, you have paid, <laughs> you've paid through the nose. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you pay through the nose. You pay property taxes yeah. to go live in this place. You pay astronomical home values to go live in this place so that you can send your kid to this lovely free public school, mm-hmm. which in, is, in fact, in that regard, not actually free at all. Right. And we've seen also across the country cases of low income parents, most notably black parents, trying to transfer their kids or use, you know, different addresses to right. put their kids in those districts and being charged uh, not only with money, but in some More cases crimes. facing jail time yeah. Yeah. charged I, with, yeah. with crimes. Mm-hmm. So. That takes us to a deeper level of what does it mean for us to even think about funding schools in this way as opposed to seeing them as a broader social good. And I think the deepest level at all, if you're asking me, like, if I could wave a magic wand, how do we really solve it at the deepest level? You know, I really would love to see a society that is less focused on this hyper individualism and -hmm. where we understand these kids are all our kids. These kids are all our responsibility. These schools are all our schools. This is a public shared collective good. Right. Even if you're not not in this instrumental way, like, oh, we're going to save so much money because we're not, you know, some people like to do these kind of economic analyses where they're like, it's cheaper to just pay for a kid's preschool than to pay for, you know, incarcerating them down Mm -hmm. the line, which I also see as a fundamentally dehumanizing argument. We should do these things because it's the right Mm -hmm. thing to do because these are kids. They don't get to pick. Right. They're born into this world and they're completely reliant upon us to provide a good place for them to be live and thrive. You know, in the wealthiest country in the world, in a city that I do not believe is broke in the ways that people think, the kind of facile ways that people think it is broke. I just think that's unconscionable. And so that for me is the much deeper thing that we have to fix, which is which is a lot more difficult.
0: Yep. So thank you so much you're Dr. You, so for being thank here. You, um, you gave us a plethora of knowledge good. and some um, plethora, for, uh, that's a good yeah. word. <laughs> yes. I well, like you're on a scholar you can't help yes but man. you know, we got to pull up the dictionary. Why wasn't the, well, the I was LA Sorry. teacher? So
2: <laughs> well, thank you all so much and thank you for being on the the front lines of the struggle every day. You know, the the only other thing I'll say is that I I remember what it was like to get my paycheck Mm. and set my calendar that the first thing I was going to do that Monday afternoon was leave school and go buy all the supplies that I needed for my students to go spend money on paper, to go spend money on pencils, to go spend money on snacks, right? food, books, essentials. I remember having to write grants right, to get basic classroom resources, to build a classroom library, to just try to give my students a fraction of the things that so many people are just – absolutely unconscious of the fact that teachers even have to ask for a fight for exactly. or, or beg for. I remember, you know, at the end of the year uh, being asked, OK, it's time to get your little union promise reimbursement and kind of laughing right. because, you know, the amount that I was going to get reimbursed was basically <laughs> a week of spending for me. Right. Wow. right. And so I would just grab whatever the last three receipts were on my desk and be like, OK, here you go. Right. I remember having colleagues that said, but literally the number of pieces of paper I'm allotted to make copies every month is fewer than the number of students that I have. So what am I supposed to to do so I just I want people wow. to really understand that reality yes. and I really appreciate you all being on the front lines of this struggle for our kids thank you for that appreciation thank you so
1: much
0: thank you all for listening we want to thank Eve for Thank being you here and so being such a great um, speaker. Yeah. We want to give shout-outs to our executive producer, Eric, mm-hmm. and our social producer, Daniel, just yeah. for being so great. The best They're producers awesome. of podcasts in Chicago. Oh, yes, they are. <laughs> so, Jim, what do we do now?
1: Well, I think we should ask our listeners to subscribe to our podcast on whatever podcast platform they have. I also think they should email us if they have any questions or comments at speaks at ctulocal1.org. And they can also call us at 312-467-8888.
0: And also, Jim and I are part of the Communications Committee We are at the CTU. So if you want to be a member of the Communications Committee, please let us know on that email or the phone number. Mm-hmm. We would love to have you. We would love to have more people part of this podcast and just doing other communications and PR for the union.
1: Yeah, and any comments you've got, any questions you'd like us to answer on the air? If you have ideas for guests, yes. If you want to be a guest
0: mm. or guest host or guest host, but well, that's it. Guest host, one and done. And that's it. <laughs> Uh-oh. All will plans are now. Thank you all so much for listening. See you at the next episode. See to you speak.